Uh, Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians. We're going to uh, move through this a little bit more today um, as we talk about how his body grows, part two. which may or may not indicate a part three. We will, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's going to. So just a bit of a review. Last week I read to you quite a bit from C.S. Lewis's um, address called Membership, um, where he talked about his understanding of um, of the body of Christ. There's um, more, excuse me, there's more that, uh, there's quite a bit more that I didn't read uh, just for uh, sake of time. We can't go back through all that again today, but just to encourage you, it it is found, I buried it here. Um, I, I don't believe it's found by itself, even though it's just like one address. It is it is compiled in this book called The Weight of Glory. Um, the Weight of Glory is the name of another one of Lewis's um, addresses. Um, um, you could say sermons, but they're not. <clears throat> Some of them were not. Uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Some of them were not uh, given as as uh, Christian messages. <clears throat> There's one of them in here. Excuse me. One of them in here. Uh, why I'm not a pacifist. Okay. Which is interesting. It was given it during uh, World War II. Um, to a pacifist society. So imagine that. They called and they, they said, Mr. Lewis, um, come and talk to us um, about whether or not we should fight since we're Christians. And so he went to the pacifist society and told them he's not a pacifist and told them why. We I only bring that up because I, I thought it was uh, striking we live in a day and age where it is considered unchristian to say anything contradictory. Um, much less have the courage to go to a group whose um, stated function is one thing and tell them that they're wrong. So, all right. So, we talked about that. If you want to, if you if you are interested in reading that, you'll probably have to get that book, Weight of Glory. You may find it in some other in some other form, but I I did not find it find it as a as an address all by itself. I want to read to you as we get started this morning. And we can't go back through everything we talked about, or we'll never get anywhere. But I want to read to you from from Ephesians two, beginning with verse five. It says, "Even when we were dead in our trespasses." made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him 
and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Excuse me. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Now, some of those concepts Lewis talked about last week, notice the word grace is mentioned three, used three times. <clears throat> notice that anything, that, anything that's, that is accomplished by us is a work of God. It's, it's, it's not us. Notice that these things were created for us before we were us. Um, and Lewis's, Lewis's point is that we are never really who God intends us to be apart from functioning in his will. And he takes it a little further and says that since we live in this broken world, we're never ever going to be all that God wants us to be until we go to be with him. So I I wanted to focus on this, that, that we're his workmanship, that he saved us and that he's making us, and when we read later in Ephesians 4, which we'll look at today, he's making us into fully mature representatives of himself. He is making us like himself. And it is his work, and as I mentioned, it's finalized when we are with him forever. So we we begin with verse 7, and um, I I think this, this little phrase is a transitional kind of sentence. It says, but grace was given... To each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. So again, we have grace mentioned, and he just finished this passage, which again we talked about last week, where he, he goes over all the reasons we should be, we should have unity. Um, all, all of the ways, all of the things upon which we should agree, even to those seven unities. There are one body, one spirit, one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. So he, he talks about why there should be unity and what the basis of that unity should be. And then he goes on to talks about um, grace. And before that, he uses the word but. And it's a contrasting word. It's not a, it's not a continuation, it's a contrast. So here we have this unity, but... I, I used it myself there. Here we have this unity. You need to see that this unity is based upon something else. And this unity is built upon the diversity of all of these gifts that God, through his grace, has given to each one of us according to his measure. It's not us. We don't choose. And and a couple of weeks ago, uh, I read to you all of those all those different gifts, there's, there's the list of gifts in Romans, there's a list of, get, a list, list of gifts in, in 1 Corinthians, and, and we read down through all that, I'm not going to do all that again. But all of those things are there that God, can, uh, that God uses in His doing, in His work, 
to make us whom He wants us to be. Folks, our purpose here, not in this building, here is to be what He wants us to be. There is nothing else of value. Our our goal should be to glorify the Lord. Our lives are supposed to be given to Him. We are. We'll look at this here in a second. If we get through this, that we're dead to self and we live for Him and for Him alone. Our purpose is to glorify Him. He should have the freedom to do with us what He wishes to make us what He wants us to be. So He, in His, and it's all. And as a matter of fact, it's all a measure of His grace. And you notice he uses here in this translation, he uses the word measure of Christ's gifts. In other words, not everybody is the same. We, we, we do not have equity. There are differences in us. I'm going to read to you just a, a passage. I, the more I read this, I'm going to read to you out of MacArthur's um, book here. I just came across this yesterday. Um, And I thought, well, and and then the more I read it, what page is it? There it is. The more I I read of it, the more I realized how wonderful it was. I think I need to just read the whole thing to you. So hang on, here we go. The list of specific gifts in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4 are not narrow and strict delineations of the spiritual gifts. There is not, for instance, a single kind of prophetic gift, teaching gift, or serving gift. A hundred believers with the gift of teaching will not all have the same degrees or areas of teaching, ability, or emphasis. One may excel in public teaching in the classroom or church. Another's teaching gift may be for instructing children. Another's for teaching one-on-one and so on. Each believer is given the measure of grace and faith to operate his gift according to God's plan. Excuse me. Add individual personality, background, education, influences life, and the needs in the area of service, and it becomes obvious that each believer is unique. Now, let's stop and think about that. What's, What's unique mean? One of a kind, unique, and we use it differently in our common, you know, vernacular here. But the definition of it is: is there is it's it's the only one, it's unique. It's the only one. <clears throat> Nor is it that the believer's single gift will be restricted to only one category of giftedness. An individual gift may include a number of specific areas of giftedness in a limitless, limitless variety of combinations. Someone with a major gift of administration may also have something of the gifts of helps and of teaching. 
Believers' gifts are like snowflakes and fingerprints. Each one is completely distinct from all others. Some teachers may emphasize knowledge, some instruction, some mercy, and others' exhortation. From the palette of gift colors, the Holy Spirit uses the brush of his sovereign design to paint the mixture of each believer so that no two are like. That's back to the uniqueness again. So he's, what he's doing here, he's, and interestingly, he uses the word palette and where you think about mixing paint colors together and coming up with, with uh, you know, all sorts of other wonderful little colors and you can make a happy tree, all right? That was a joke. I'm glad everybody laughed. All right. Christians are not assembly line productions with every unit being exactly like every other unit. Remember what uh, Lewis said when he talked about the family? There's a mother and a father and a grown son and a, and, and, and a daughter and a dog and a cat. All right, And he said, what, if you take one away, you've not only taken that person away, you have changed the structure of that organism. So not like every unit. Consequently, no Christian can replace another in God's plan. He has his own individualized plan for each of us and has individually gifted us accordingly. We are not interchangeable parts in Christ's body, but individually members one of another, Romans 12, 5. One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills, 1 Corinthians 12.11. When a believer does not minister his gift properly as God's steward, God's work suffers to that degree because God has not called or gifted another Christian in exactly the same way or for exactly the same work. That is why no Christian is to be a spectator. Every believer is on the team and its strategic and is strategic in God's plan with his own unique skills, position, and responsibilities. So there's a lot to grasp in all that. I'm not going to try to get into all that. We'll talk more about that as we move through and as we delineate some of these gifts, not only here in the book of Ephesians, but also when we get to Romans and and, uh, and 1 Corinthians, some of these things that we um, that we mentioned already. But please note, it's his doing. It's his work. And he's responsible for it. Now, I want to give you a warning. Um, having done this for all of these several decades now, um, do not worry about what gift you might or might not have. Okay? We used to, we used to give out spiritual gifts um, inventories. And we'd ask people, you know, a series of questions, and at the end of the thing, we would tell them, okay, this indicates you have this gift. All right, this indicates you have this gift. Don't worry about that. You will be, if you, if you are submissive to the Lord and obedient to Him, you will function the way He wants you to function. Whether or not you can ever figure out, well, yes, I'm, I've got the gift of help, or I've got the gift of administration, or, or I've got, did you know there's a gift of giving? Solicited. There's a gift of mercy. Did you know that? So, uh, whether or not you ever figure that out, if you are obedient to the Lord, you will function the way He wants you to function. The, import, the important thing is not that you know what it is. Oh, yeah, I've got this gift, you know. That, that's what Paul was dealing with in 1 Corinthians. Well, i got this one. This one's better. 
So that's not the important thing. The important thing is not that you know it, but that you function. And if you are obedient and submissive to him, he cannot fail. God cannot fail. When he said, Moses, stretch out your arm over the Red Sea, did the Red Sea part? It most certainly did. When it was time to close it, did it close? Yes, it did. When Joshua was fighting the battle and he said, I need more daylight, did the earth stop moving or the sun stand still? Yes, it did. When Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, did Lazarus come forth? Yes, he did. God cannot fail. He will do this. All right, verses 8 through 10. Um, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So if you're marking anything in your Bible, you like to write down little things to remind you of things, you can write down next to this, the triumphant Christ. This is actually a quote from Psalm 68, verse 18. And it's a description uh, that, that would have been common in those days of a, of a, a victorious conqueror um, returning home with spoils of war, including captives. And, uh, and the Romans were very good at doing this, you know. So when, 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 the, con- when the conquering um, um, legionnaire would, would come back, the conquering gen- general would come back, he would bring all of the spoils and he would present them. He'd show the city how wonderful he was and they would, they would march in a grand review and they would bring all of, the, all of the gold and the wonderful things that they had captured. They would bring animals from all over the world. I don't know if you realize this side point, but I don't know if you realize it, but there are animals that are for the most part extinct because Rome took them and killed them. Hmm. Anyway, they would bring all of these things in, and then they would bring captives. And the, and the greater the enemy was, the more wonderful it was that he conquered them. So he would bring all these people, cap- he would bring them, and he would show off all of these, all these things. So this is what this is. This is, a, this is a, the showing a victorious conqueror returning home with the spoils of war, including captives. Now, uh, there are different interpretations of this descent and ascent. Paul says it's impossible for someone to ascend who has not first descended. That's what he's talking about there. It sounds like double speak, but it's not. He's just laying this foundation. And he goes on to, to talk about some, some things that have led others into some speculations. We're not going to go there today. Um, it's not that those things are unimportant, but that's not our focus today. Our focus today is that this Jesus is triumphant. And because he's triumphant, he has spoils and he has things and he can give gifts to men. Because he is triumphant, as it says, he, it says in verse 10, he can fill all things. And I get back to this point again. And this, what's God doing here is he's building his body. He is not failing. He's not going to fail. He has conquered, and some Bible scholars believe this is a, a reference to Jesus conquering all the powers of darkness and leading captivity captive and, and, and uh, taking Satan's authority and, and emptying um, the place of the grave. 
He, he will not fail. He will fill all things. And then it says, He gave gifts. And He gave gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, or pastor-teacher. So there's four or five, depending upon how you want to translate that. With these gifts, the emphasis is on their humanity. Not what they do, but on the fact that they are persons. So he has given these persons with these particular um, set of skills or gifts, people, men, who are specifically enabled to minister to the rest of the body, Notice that, it says this, in verse 11, he gave some, uh, some apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, that's in verse 12, for the work of the ministry. So what's the purpose that he's doing this? What does he, why does he give apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers? He gives them so that those people can minister to the rest of the body so that the rest of the body can minister to itself. And that's what we get when we get later in the chapter where it talks about every joint supplies. The body grows because, you know, the blood vessels are working and the joints are there and everything is functioning. Everything is taking care of itself. Now, um, it's not a new thing to do this. And in the past, we've kind of challenged what goes on in contemporary church uh, settings. We're going to do that here again before we leave. Maybe you've heard it said or you've seen it practiced that churches have certain, have certain trained people who do ministry. Um, and everyone else receives. That's an error. Um, there's a lot of um, interlocking, uh, convoluted history that, that goes into this, as there as there is uh, with most concepts. You know, so somebody has an idea, someone adds something to the idea, and and then it it kind of winds itself around, and it 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 morphs and becomes becomes. Uh, something else. Um, it's been pr- practice in the past. And I, I, I wondered about this. I didn't know. So let me interrupt myself and go back. I, I wondered about this. I didn't know. When I was young in the ministry, I, I didn't know this because I, back- I didn't have a background to understand it, but I'd have people who would say, please pray for me. And I'd say, well, okay. Um, but it wasn't that they wanted someone they wanted the preacher to pray for them. And the reason they did was because they believed that the preacher's prayers were special. Okay? I mean, and so, well, and I, I didn't know. I didn't become, so, but it's been practice. I got to trim my beard. My jaw's all out of whack here. Uh, it's been practiced in the past. 
in Roman Catholicism that when a man becomes a priest, he receives a special touch from God. I'm, going to, I'm trying to be careful here with the language so I don't mess up Roman Catholic theology. But he gets a special touch from God and he's no longer a simple human. And that's why he can stand, like we had communion here, we do it all completely different because our, our concepts are completely different. He can take the Eucharist, the, the wine, and bless it, and it becomes the blood of Christ. Did you know that? If you're a Roman Catholic and you take communion, you're actually drinking the blood of Christ. Catholics believe that wine becomes the blood of Christ because the priest blesses it. I'm here with me here so far. So it, it dawned on me later, well, people, people think that my prayers are, are better than theirs. And why is that? Because that teaching or understanding has, has carried over and, and permeated itself. And it's true even in um, uh, Protestant churches. It's true even in evangelical churches. This dude from Germany comes along in the 16th century and writes some things down and nails them to a door. And part of the doctrine that he articulates is that every believer is a priest. And that's called the priesthood of believers. And it's found in your New Testament. I mean, you're still with me. All right, we're, we're, I mean, you're lost. All right. It was Luther, by the way, if you're pondering that. It was, that's who it was. It was Luther. So he says every, every believer has sacrifices to God. Every believer has access to God. We don't go through another priest. And again, there's more that could be said about this, but one of the reasons Luther got in trouble was not because he expounded new doctrine, but was because the doctrine that he expounded undermined the ecclesiastical authority of the system that paid them. If you no longer need them, they're going to go broke. So is it that simple? Mm, almost, yes. Almost. So, um, let me get back to this. God works His gifts puts his gifts in us to make us, we're his workmanship, to make us whom he wants us to be so that together, we, together as we function in him, as we function in him, we're taking care of one another. We're, we're, the joints are supplying and other, people are being, the other people's needs are being met and that's how through the Holy Ghost he ministers to people's needs. So... Um, There's all kinds of there's all kinds of manifestations and ramifications of this. I th I think one of the saddest ones that I see in churches is they have a visitation minister. Um, 
who, who basically is on staff to go to the hospitals, to go to shut-ins, and to minister to their needs, to pray with them if they need prayer, to take them communion if they need communion, so on and so forth. And that seems to me to be the, the, the most egregious of these things. I can understand there's certain people with certain skills. A lot of big churches have what they call an administrative pastor. What does he do? He pays the bills. Okay? Whether he's a pastor or not, I don't know, but he pays the bills. I understand that. Maybe there's someone with some skill who can do that. But when we're talking about visiting one another, that I do not understand. Nor can I find a scriptural basis for it. I I can't go into all the details of all that today or I'm never going to get done with this. But um, we, we need to rethink. We need to ask ourselves some fundamental questions. Is what we're doing actually based in scripture? Now before we're done here, maybe I want to... I got all the notes here for it, but I'm probably going to wait till next week. I'm going to talk to you about not only some things that people have added that aren't in Scripture, I'm going to talk about things in Scripture that people have taken away. Okay? All right, so he gave some gifts. First thing he gave was apostles. Um, what is it? Well, firstly, it's plural. The word apostle means messenger or emissary so an apostle is someone who's carrying a divine message we had um, 12 disciples who and one commentator said when they ministered to Jesus they were called disciples and when they ministered to the church they were called apostles well, that's an interesting concept you can uh, you know that that's a study project for you today um and stop to think about that and, and maybe write uh, a doctoral thesis or something on it and turn it in next week if you're interested. All right, so there, there, so there were 12, but one of them was a traitor and they lost him. And when you read the first chapter of Acts, it's interesting, they, they, they all gather around and say, well, what are we going to do? He says, well, there's only 11 of us. There's supposed to be 12. So we need to find a 12th guy. So what did they do? They found two guys... Okay, one of them's name was Matthias, and another was name was Justice, and they said we were these these men were both with us from the very beginning, and they saw everything that Jesus did. And that, by the way, that's one of the qualifications for this process. They saw everything that Jesus did, so let's choose. And they said we don't know how to do, so they they cast lots, and they prayed. And I'm folks, this is I, I'm not suggesting this is how you should make decisions. Okay, um, I mean, if if, <laughs> if you go to buy a car and it's between the red and the blue and you can't make up your mind, I don't care. Flip a coin, you know. The, but I'm not suggesting this is how you make decisions, but that's what they did. They cast lots. The lots fell on Matthias, and Justice, who was also qualified, was not counted among the twelve from that point on. Who knows what Matthias did? I don't believe he is. What about justice? How many of these apostles wrote Bible books? 
This is, I'm, I'm going to wait here for a second and let you think. Go down through it. Think about it. Okay, I got, I got, I got from back here, I got two. Matthew, Mark's not listed. Peter and John are the only ones that I can think of. Mark was not one of the twelve. Mark, they tell us, got most of his information from Peter and wrote his gospel from Peter. Luke is not listed. Luke got his information, and I didn't look this up, so I'm not going to speculate, but he got his information also from one of the eyewitnesses, because he wasn't there. And then you get into the New Testament, we're not really sure who wrote the book of Acts, but after the book of Acts, we get Romans. And so the rest of these books are written by Paul, or Peter, or John. So out of the twelve, three wrote Bible books. Okay? Say, why are you emphasizing that? Because later I'm going to talk to you about modern day apostles, and if there are any. Okay? Maybe there are, maybe there aren't. Now, these twelve also to some degree, became the overseers of the early church. So when you see Barnabas and Saul coming back from a missionary journey, they go to Jerusalem and they, they, meet before the, they meet the people who were there. When the Apostle Paul got saved on the road to Damascus and then, and then he was there, you remember his story, and they, he, they said, he's, we're going to kill him because he's, he's no longer a Jewish guy, he's a traitor, we're going to kill him. And he's, he went down the wall of the city in a what? In a fish basket, and he, he escaped, and he went to Jerusalem, and he met with the leaders who were there, quote, close quote, and the people who seemed to be significant, and he said, they didn't have anything to add to me, and I went on, and then he comes back, he keeps reporting back to them, so those, this 12, for the most part, because very early on, one of them gets killed, James, the brother of John, dies, gets, gets martyred. So very on, very early on, these people, uh, until the Church of Jerusalem kind of fades out of uh, out of importance, they're the headers, they're the leaders of that church. So they're the apostles. But remember, the word apostle means messenger. Now I, I tried to look this up. I, um, I found several people who were called apostles. Apollos is called an apostle. Epaphroditus is mentioned as an apostle. Um, James, the Lord's brother, is called an apostle. And he actually becomes a leader in that church in Jerusalem. You read the book of Acts. Barnabas is called an apostle. Andronicus is called an apostle. You thought he was a lion, or you thought he had interactions with a lion, didn't you? It's a different guy. 
Okay. How many know Andronicus from the Bible? Yeah, me neither. But there he is. He's he's mentioned. Okay. <laughs> he's mentioned as a messenger. And then uh, there are other people who are unnamed who are called apostles. Timothy is called an apostle. And Silas is referred to as an apostle. So all through the New Testament period, we have people who are called apostles. Prophets. Let's go on to the next word. An Old Testament prophet. Oh my goodness. An Old Testament prophet was a fellow who revealed mysteries and he called the people to repentance. The greatest Old Testament prophet was John the Baptist. Okay? So was he Old Testament or New Testament? Yes. So he was also what? The greatest New Testament prophet. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, Jesus told his disciples, he said, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. No one. The prophets. Some old, some, some old Testament prophets were used to give us scripture. Like Isaiah and Jeremiah and there are others. All right? So they wrote down their prophecies or someone wrote them down for them, a scribe, and, and they read them and, and they became scripture and they're in our Bible. Some Old Testament prophets are the subject of Scripture. So we have, the, um, we have the, the narratives or the accounts of, let's say, like Elijah and Elisha. We hear what they did. We hear what they said. But their words are not necessarily prophetic words for us. Now, there are New Testament prophets that are mentioned in Scripture. I already mentioned one, John the Baptist. Another one that's mentioned more than once is a fellow by the name of Agabus. And Agabus prophesied, you don't have to read the book of Acts to get into all this, but Agabus prophesied that there was going to be a famine in Jerusalem. And that's one of the reasons the Apostle Paul was out here collecting money because indeed there was a famine in Jerusalem. When we read the book of Philippians, he says, you know, you, you gave, and he talks to the others, you gave, and you helped these brethren back here who were in need. And, he, and when he write, wrote to the Corinthians, he said, you collect it before I get there. When I get there, I'm going to send it back to help with these people who are in need. There was, he, he, he not only prophesied that it was going to happen, it did happen. Agabus is also mentioned toward the end of the book of Acts because he's one of the fellows that says to Paul, Paul, don't go there, because when you do, they're going to arrest you. Same guy. Now, there's no, there's no reference to any place that he fulfilled like that qualification of calling people to repentance, but he most certainly did tell people things that were going to happen. So there's some revelation of mystery that was there. Paul, Peter, and, and many of the others also fulfilled that Old Testament criteria. How? Because they revealed mystery and they called people to repentance. In the New Testament, and you can, I'm not going to take time to read this. We'll talk about it again later sometime. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 3 talks about prophecy. And it says that all prophecy, in the King James Version, it says is for edification, exhortation, and comfort. All right? So when someone in the New Testament prophesies, it isn't necessarily to, to tell what's going to happen tomorrow. or to tell you about your sin, it's to edify, it's to build you up, it's to encourage or exhort, keep going, keep going, or 
comfort. God's in control. God's in charge. That kind of that kind of thing. Prophets, evangelists. I've got one more of these, and then we'll stop and we'll continue on. Evangelists. The root of the word evangelist is the same root that we get our word gospel from. It means good news. It's just a different form of that, and it's a it's a form that has to do with the the taking of that message. So an evangelist is someone who is God, has a God-ordained ability that is geared toward sharing the gospel. And in practical purposes, it's usually uh, connected with taking that gospel someplace it's yet to go. This particular word, evangelist, is only used three times in the New Testament. In in Acts chapter 21, it, it calls Philip who was one of the seven, an evangelist, who were one of the seven. You remember those seven deacons? Who's going to serve these people? And he says, you choose seven men from among you full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and we'll set them over this work. And they gave their names, and Philip was one of them. Philip was the fellow who met the Ethiopian eunuch and shared the gospel with him and baptized him. Philip was also known for vanishing into thin air and showing up in another city. Say, is that in your Bible? Yes, it's in your Bible. Um, Good old Philip. He was called an evangelist. The second time is used right here in Ephesians. The third time, it's in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, where Paul's given Timothy personal instruction, and he tells him, do the work of an evangelist. And that's an interesting concept, because now instead of having this endowment that's natural for him. I'm, I'm you know, I, it's just easy for me to go share the gospel with people instead of having this endowment. Paul says, "You do the work, whether you got the gift or not." And I'll take you back. Think back to some of the things that Lewis said. Think back to the things that I read from from MacArthur a few minutes ago. All right, we're going to continue from here, and we're going to talk more about these things. We're going to talk about how we look at Scripture some. Um, let, let me try to sum this up. What, what, what does this look like? And um, I appreciated MacArthur's practicalities. It was good. I, I, I appreciated last week, once again, reading from, from Lewis. And, and his, his were practicals too, although they were more philosophical and theologically based, where he actually worked us through thinking through this, this process. What does this look like? The triumphant Christ... Gives gifts for his body. For his body for whom he died. Jesus died. Gave his life. Gave his precious blood to redeem for himself a people that he would call his own. And in the process of how he would deal with that, he calls, you know, he calls it a body. The Apostle Paul calls it, so we can get this picture. The process of how he deals with that, he said, here's, I, I'm going to call these people to my own, and the way they're going to be taken care of is the Holy Spirit is going to come, and they're going to take care of one another. Not, I'm, it, 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 folks, it's not this business where I'm, I'm going to go to some church, and I'm going to go to church, and the church is going to take care of me. 
and the church is going to take care of that guy, and the church is going to take care of that gal, and so I don't have any responsibility of that guy, or I don't have any responsibility of that gal. Wrong! This church for whom Jesus Christ died is to take care of itself. Modern churchianity treats Christ's body like a Walmart or a Costco or a restaurant. You come in and you get your merchandise and you leave. And if they quit carrying the merchandise you like, you go someplace else and you don't say anything to anybody. Maybe if you're really irritated, you call the manager and say, I'm not coming there anymore because you don't have the right kind of toilet paper. Now, maybe that's a new new thought to you, but uh, I quit going to these church gross conferences decades ago because they made me sick to my stomach. And uh, a lot of them are um, modeled after worldly merchandising concepts. In Acts chapter 5, people died because they lied to Christ's body. You know the story? They brought in their offering. Peter says, "How you know, what are you doing? And, and actually, Peter didn't quiz the guy. The guy lied. The guy lied and said, I'm bringing this in. I sold a piece of property. This is how much I sold it for. And it was a lie. Peter didn't have to quiz him. And what happened to the guy? Plopped over dead. And then the scripture tells us ahead of time so we know what's going on. His wife came in. Now Peter's asking questions. She said, you know, about this gift. And he said, is this how much you sold it for? And she says, yes, she lied. And and Peter says... You know, I'm old, and I, this just struck me the other day. Peter's, or, uh, Peter said, uh, well, the same people who just buried your, your husband are going to bury you. I hear their footsteps. That'll give you a pause if you hear footsteps outside the church door, won't it? I hear, your, I hear their footsteps, and she fell over dead, and he buried her. So I, I pondered this, you know, it was the first time, I said, you know, the first time that happened, I wonder if Peter was surprised. Because the Lord said to him, you know, probably this guy's lying. And he fell over dead. But when it happened the second time, Peter wasn't surprised. Peter orchestrated it. Listen to me, folks. The leader of Christ's church, with those people, asked her questions, knowing that if she lied, she would die. We have no courage in pulpits anymore. People died when they lied to the church because Peter said, when you lie to these people, you've also lied to God. Now, as we close, I want you just to look briefly at what's ahead. And let me just give you a little bit connect to this because he gets down through this passage talking about how the whole body is going to minister to itself and, and, and take, take care of itself. Uh, um, let me say one more thing.
Uh, I got a text last night from some people who were sick, you know, so we can pray for them and let me know we're not there. Where, where is accountability? Down, you know, down through, again, 45 years of doing this, something like that, um, 46 or so, I forget. I've had people come to our meetings here and in other places for months and disappear without saying a word. How can that be the Spirit of God when it isn't even ethical among humanity just to disappear? Are you following me? You know... If you're not going to be at lunch, call and tell the person you're not going to be at lunch so they don't sit there waiting on you. Be accountable. So how can they do that? It's because the world has taught them that church is just like a Walmart or a Costco or a restaurant. They pick and choose how they want, and there is no accountability. Remember, this thing... This thing that we're trying to do, and, it, and I know it, it doesn't look that way. It doesn't look important. It doesn't, it doesn't, look, it, it, it doesn't look spiritual. It's just a bunch of people with dirt on their shoes, and they're trying to figure out how to raise their kids and how to pay their bills and, and, and sorting through all this stuff. And sometimes they get angry, and sometimes they get sad, and sometimes they get happy when they shouldn't be happy, and they laugh at the wrong thing, and they tell the wrong story. There's all kinds of weaknesses and brokenness among all of us. But this thing is what Jesus Christ died for. He gave his self so that he could call us to him and make us whom he wants us to be. We are his workmanship. How can we be so flippant with it? Verse 17, as he gets done talking about all this stuff and, and about how the body's to take care of itself, he, he contrasts this. He says in verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. You can't live that way any longer. Verse 22 in, in chapter 4, he says, you put off the old self. The old self live, lives for itself. The new self lives to honor Christ. Put off the old self. Verse 25, speak truth. Speak truth. One of the reasons there's very little truth out here in the world is because there's very little truth in the church. I just came across this a few months ago, old as I am. It's actually a legal... It's at the basis of our legal system. So if you tell someone something that's untrue... Um, how do I say this? Let me, let me back up. If you say something to someone knowing they will perceive it in a way different than is reality, that's a lie. Okay? You didn't necessarily lie to them. You just told them something and, and they heard it. You knew they were going to hear what you wanted to say. That's a lie. That's in our legal system. Speak the truth. Verse 29, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth. 
and then chapter 5, verse 1. And by the way, he continues with this. He, he continues on talking about how we're to live. And, and we know this because in chapter 5 he says, here's how wives are supposed to treat husbands. Here's how husbands are supposed to treat wives. Here's how employers are supposed to treat employees. Here's how employees are supposed to treat employers. And so on and so forth. So he continues on with this. In, in verse 5 he says, be imitators of God. And walk in love. So, again, we put these chapter headings in here, but here's the Apostle Paul. He says, look, here's all these, this is this wonderful doctrine in the first three chapters. Here's all the things that Jesus Christ did for you. And, and all the things that He did in His grace. And He called you to Himself. And here's what you are. I want you to think about yourself in a new way. You're no longer what you were. And now, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to live and take care of one another. He's called you to take care of one another. He's given you abilities so that you can take care of one another. Don't live in that old way any longer. Put off that old self. Speak the truth. If you're a thief, quit thieving. Quit thieving. Thieving. Stealing. Quit taking what isn't yours. Be like God. This is how we're supposed to live with one another. Uh, I, I, I know it's true, and, and I, I can some, to some degree see it happening. I know, you, I know people are taking care of one another. I, I don't need to know all of it. Um, good heavens, I, I couldn't keep... It, it's impossible for any person to take care of everybody. We've got to take care of one another. If we get past this superficiality, if you're hurting, somebody asks you, you tell them you're hurting. Say, well, I don't want to discourage them. That's not true, though, is it? If you lie to them, you're lying to them. Is that right? If you're afraid they can't handle it, say, well, I say something, well, I've, I've had better days. And if they can't handle it, they won't ask you. Maybe they'll go home and think, well, I wonder what he meant by that. I better call him up and find out. And maybe they'll call you up and say, how are you? Tell them. And pray together with it. You don't have to give people advice. You, you can pray together. If you see somebody has a need, try to meet the need. Minister to one another. Care for one another. That, and, and, and the simplest thing, the easiest thing, is to pray for one another. So I would go over this list every week and ask people and ask people to pray. It's not just some perfunctory thing that we do because we're in church and we're supposed to be doing that. We're supposed to be praying for one another. All right, I went really long. Um, you should you should see all the notes here. I didn't go over. Okay, that I, that may not make you feel better. Uh, probably doesn't, but it is somewhat sort of a justification for me. Heavenly Father, how we need your grace. Here, your command tells us to be like you, and in so many ways we fall short. Yet there is this yearning and longing to fulfill your word, to be what you'd have us to be. And it's been my prayer as we've moved through this. It will continue to be my prayer as we move, continue to move through and when we're done, that you'll do something different and that we will care for one another. It won't depend upon some organization, ecclesiastical or otherwise. Otherwise. 
but that we'll care for one another, that we'll pray for one another, that we'll look out for one another, that we'll defend one another, that we'll speak truth with one another, that we'll speak truth with love to one another. I pray that allow us to weep together and laugh together. Enjoy what you've done in each of our lives with one another and enjoy you with our brothers and sisters. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.